I think that one of the primary ways that new research is um, being conducted in Jordan is through the eyes of um, political scientists and big data and especially security concerns and global geopolitical macro kinds of questions. And as an anthropologist, I'm much more focused on the micro and I'm focused on the ways that everyday people are doing their everyday kinds of things. Uh, it's often mundane and some might even say um, perhaps boring, but I think it's where actually the grit and the, uh, the work of everyday life really comes to the fore. And so for me as an anthropologist, I look at not only what people are doing in their everyday lives, but um, how they talk about it and how they talk about it with each other. And so um, for me as an anthropologist, I think these questions of a holistic approach becomes really important. The questions of uh, what people are discussing, why they're discussing them, why they're important, and what they do about it. Um, these are the ways that I think anthropology really has a lot to say about what's going on in Jordan in particular, uh, but throughout the Middle East as well. Uh, I think in the reporting of these large scale events and political, geopolitical kind of strategies, uh, the humanity can be lost. And for me, anthropology is about the search for the human experience. When I first went to Jordan in 2007, I was initially planning to do a study on Islamic banking and finance. And when I got to Jordan, what I found was that people kept talking about the real Islam. And so there are all these references. What is the real Islam? What does it look like? How does it work? And people were using this phrase, the real Islam, to say something about themselves, about the kind of religious life that they understood themselves to have, but also about each other. Were people practicing the real Islam when they dressed a certain way or when they practiced Ramadan in a certain way or when they prayed a certain way? And so I, when I showed up in Jordan and I kept hearing this question, everyone had something different to say about it, but everyone believed that there was this singular real Islam that existed. And this confused me. Where is this real Islam? What is it? How do I find it? Right? It's the same kind of questions that, that people themselves were asking. And this was the prompt for the book that uh, I published in 2016. Everyday Piety, Islam and Economy in Jordan. And what I found was that the real Islam was very much a, a discursive way, a, a way that people would engage in language and practice with each other uh, to develop an idea about an ethic of Islam, an ethical way of living that they would present, especially in economic practices. And so the study really hones in on questions of, if you will, the real Islam or what people believe the real Islam to be um, in economic life in the fields of the hijab, um, the headscarf, uh, but also in the case of Ramadan and these kinds of seasonal changes that can happen in the way that Islam is practiced and understood. There's a temporal kind of element as well. And then in the most kind of pressing questions of, of economy uh, in Islamic banking and finance. And in doing this study, what I found was not only were people trying to Islamize their economic life, kind of uh, take their economic life as producers and consumers of um, credit and everyday you know, banking accounts and checking accounts, uh, but also as consumers of goods and services and knowledge and ideas. And they were trying to make them somehow Islamic. And so the idea that um, 
the headscarf, right, is uh, it's an Islamic um, dress. It's the hijab. It has these these roots in the Quran that are believed to be historical and true and objective in many ways, although contested and debated by scholars. Um, it's not only that some women wear it and some don't, but the, the life trajectories of the women who wear it and then they don't wear it, or the spatial configurations in which they might wear it more tightly around their heads in some spaces and more loosely in others. And it's, it has a lot more flexibility and sort of life ways, if you will, um, than just a, a simple kind of monolithic reading on the practice. And so I apply some of these same questions as well to the case of Ramadan, in which I found um, people were, were very keen to practice Islam in a, a certain way um, that would uh, kind of maximize their uh, economic type of, of practice. And um, in doing all this anyway, I found that, um, is, that their Islamic pious lives also then took on of uh, capitalist and economic forms. And so people would start talking about, um, for example, Laylatul Qadr, uh, the night of power. Uh, this is towards the end of Ramadan. It's believed to be the 20th night of the month in which the Quran was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. And so people will maximize the possibilities for that evening. So many people will sleep in the mosque or they read the Quran or they become their most pious selves because the belief is that the blessings become uh, multiplied unto them. And the way that people talked about it was very much about maximizing the benefit and minimizing risk and this language that might otherwise sort of occupy the way people are balancing their checkbook or thinking about their monthly budget then became also the kind of language that they were using to talk about their Islamic life. And so what I um, ended up writing about was what I call neoliberal piety, this merging of Islamic life and uh, economic life into very compatible modern, contemporaneous kinds of forms. So after the Arab Spring, um, which was happening at the same time that I was finishing my dissertation, the Jordanians that I was working with and talking with became very concerned about the influx of Syrian refugees. The first Syrian refugees came into Jordan from the Dara region of southern Syria. They came in smaller numbers at first, but over time they became quite numerous. and. I believe that to be an ethical researcher, you need to pay attention to the things that the people you're researching are paying attention to. And so as their attentions turned towards the Syrian refugee crisis, so too have my own. And so in 2014, I started the first um, sort of, if you will, dip into um, studying Syrian refugees. Um, Long-term ethnographic research is much more difficult. Um, I'm further along in my career, but also the access to refugee camps is only granted during daytime hours for specified you know, weeks or months at a time. And so the kind of intensive, in-depth ethnographic research that I did outside of the camps in Jordan with Jordanians, Palestinians there, uh, is not very easy, if at all possible, to do within the Syrian refugee camps. So I would go as often as I could, talk with uh, people as often as I could, um, and I started asking some questions related to the everyday lives of the Syrians in the camps. Um, also still on these questions of Islam and on economic life. So some of the early kinds of questions that I was asking were about family practices and family arrangements. And I came to find out a number of, I think, really interesting and important things. One is that um, early marriage has become, or the marriage of, of young uh, girls in particular, but young people in general, um, 
has seen what is believed to be a kind of increase amongst Syrians within the camps. I think that this is a, an important topic, not because of the kind of morally charged way in which many Western NGOs or, or donors kind of uh, bang the drum to raise money for ending the practice, but because of why it emerges and how it's sustained. These are, I think, the much more interesting questions than these morally laden kinds of conversations that are often had about the practice in the West. So I spent some time talking with young girls in the camps, older women as well, trying to understand why it happens um, and why the practice is sustained and how people see it and how they feel about it. And what I found was actually that the kind of Western depiction of early marriage as a 12, 13, maybe 14 year old girl to this 85 year old, you know, Saudi, that's always the kind of stereotypical portrayal, who comes in and takes the girl and sort of traffics her, you know, back to the Gulf, happens extraordinarily rarely. It can happen, it has happened, but the most common case are actually more like 15, 16 year old girls who are engaged to and then marry their 16, 17, 18 year old cousins. And so there is a push to keep girls in families and men in families um, with other family members where extended family is known. There can be accountability. There can be some possibilities for the girls to have a support network. And in fact, um, to stay close to their natal families, to their, their own mothers and their aunts and their, their own grandmothers in some instances. Um, and in fact, in some of the conversations I had with the young women, I came to find that Zatsuri, for example, but also in Azraq and other camps, um, the ways that people settle in the camps and reconfigure themselves in the camps means that the girls and the young men as well um, have more exposure to other young people than they might have had in Syria. And so it can at times even be a romantic kind of arrangement. Um, so the, I think this gross kind of um, depiction of these young girls being sort of pulled out of their home and trafficked to faraway places, um, although based in fact is not the typical kind of norm. Um, so that's one project I, I started with. I've been looking at uh, also questions of sectarianism, which is what I'm talking about today. Um, and what I'm looking at is the way that vernacular politics plays out. And what I'm arguing is that sectarianism is not actually a kind of um, static or primordial kind of concept that people are born into and they keep that label and they keep that identity forever, but a process by which vernacular politics, local politics, accounts for class and gender and ethnicity and also lived experiences and lived histories and is expressed through these kinds of sectarian discourses. Um, Krista Salamandra is an anthropologist of Syria who, whose work I really admire, and she calls this the poetics of accusation, which I think is such a brilliant turn of phrase. And I think that's capturing exactly the way that the Syrian refugees that I spoke with are talking about sectarianism. And for this study, I conducted um, some research with a religion class that was taking place in one of the refugee camps. And so I'm doing a discourse analysis looking at the content of the class, the response of the women in the class. But then I also took the content of the class and those responses to my Jordanian friends. 
and had a couple of focus groups and asked for Jordanian responses. And what I found was that this vernacular politics of Syrians that expresses these forms of accusation of inclusion and exclusion and violence and histories of power struggles and disenchantments through these sectarian terms is, of course, not the, hist the history of Jordanians. And in fact, Jordanians have taken very much uh, the case that they are a country of unity, of cohesion, uh, and they've taken that very seriously. And given the upheaval that their neighboring countries have experienced, of course, this push towards unity and cohesion is completely understandable. But what that means is that you have a Sunni majority in Jordan encountering a Sunni majority Syrian refugee population. And for an outside observer, you might think that's no problem. They're all of the same sect, so everything's fine. But in fact, what I am arguing is that there are these differences in vernacular politics, in national histories, in political histories, that render the way that people talk about sectarianism and use sectarian idioms to be, in fact, quite different and potentially somewhat destabilizing between the two groups of people. Um, in other instances among Syrian refugees, I'm looking at uh, some things like community policing. I have been looking at the kafala system and the way that it has been used to privatize refugee management. And what I'm hoping to do is to bring this all together into a book project in which I talk about, again, economy and Islam and organize the book around the idea that people are economizing their refugee experience. They're making choices, they're strategizing, they're maximizing possibility, they're limiting their risk, they're calculating risk. And the work, if you will, of becoming a refugee is a full-time job. Syrians have to manage their everyday lives in these very regimented ways in order to meet their everyday needs, to look out for their children, and to hope to prepare for a future. And these are the forms that I'm, I'm looking at in, in the book and uh, hoping it will come together in the coming months.